This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The Alzheimer's Association International Conference was in Toronto this week, and while much of the focus was on innovation and the future of treating the disease, we'll speak with one doctor who says... We're not treating patients with current means and medications. And Ontario is delisting high doses of opioids to help combat addiction. But Dr. Darren Cargill of the Ontario Medical Association calls it a short-sighted response that will harm patients in palliative care. He'll join us to talk about it. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A federal judge has granted John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot U.S. President Ronald Reagan in 1981, full-time release from St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., where he's been in treatment since the shooting. The last hearing in this case was more than a year ago, and the government pushed for strict conditions for his release as he goes to live with his 90-year-old mother in Williamsburg, Virginia. The court has ordered him not to speak to the media. Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis, says she believes in forgiveness but is disgusted by the decision. It appears legendary Zoomer author J.K. Rowling has another monster hit on her hands. Her latest effort, labeled as the eighth story in the Harry Potter series, has become the most pre-ordered book in North America since 2007. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is not a book as much as the script for a London play which hasn't fully opened to the public. The work is set 19 years after Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Harry is all grown up, overworked, and the father of three. More than 450 million copies of the seven original Harry Potter books have been sold worldwide in 79 languages. More than 50 years after Scylla Black's It's For You reached number seven on the charts, we learn the story behind the song, written for her by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. After Black passed away last year, her family was going through her belongings and found the original demo featuring McCartney on vocals. I'd say someday I'm bound to give my heart away if I do. The demo will now be auctioned off August 27th at the annual Liverpool Beatles auction. Two iconic hockey broadcasters have been honoured with a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. A star for Don Cherry and Ron McLean was unveiled in a downtown Toronto ceremony. Cherry and McLean have been hosts of Coach's Corner for almost 30 years. Cherry appeared first in 1980 with McLean joining him in 87 and Don Cherry joked that the star had the right design since his name was on top. (laughs) 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Alzheimer's International Conference has wrapped up in Toronto, billed as the world's largest forum for the dementia research community. Researchers, clinicians, care providers and students from over 70 countries gathered to discuss the latest dementia study results, theories and discoveries. But at least one of the doctors at the conference is worried that not enough is being done with the current methods. Dr. Sharon Cohn of the Toronto Memory Program joins me. You're at this big conference, and obviously a lot of new things are being unveiled, but you have found that the tools we have for Alzheimer's disease are not being used enough. Absolutely correct, and this is not new, but it is being newly emphasized and echoed, and I think it's really important that this time around we pay attention to the fact that we have had some treatments, and while they're far from perfect and should not stop endeavors to find better treatments or additional treatments, we shouldn't be abandoning something that adds some value to the many, many patients around the world who suffer from Alzheimer's. What percentage of patients are actually diagnosed, and what percentage are actually treated? 50% are diagnosed, so we're missing half the patients. And of those patients who we diagnose, so of the 50% of the total that we diagnose, 50% or less of those are started on treatment. So it's the minority of all the people out there with Alzheimer's disease who get to treatment because only half of those are being diagnosed and only half of those diagnosed are started on treatment. And the treatments themselves are often not given at the optimal doses and not for the adequate duration that we think the medicines work for. So we're obviously not getting the messages out clearly enough about what people need to do. What's the problem? Why is that happening? Well, there's several reasons, and they're not easy to fix, but they need to be addressed. And one problem is that Alzheimer's disease is not as simple as um, hypertension to diagnose. You can't just get a blood pressure reading and diagnose high blood pressure. You actually have to take quite a bit of time to sit down and figure out what's changed in a person's thinking and behavior. And you have to measure that objectively with some uh, memory tests or other um, psychometric tests. And to do that, you need to have number one, time and resources. You need to have somebody who can administer and score and interpret tests accurately. Otherwise, you raise a lot of panic in people who are well and maybe get a test result that's alarming. So you you don't want to over-diagnose or under-diagnose. But the time and skill set is really not something that's readily available by our, our colleagues in family practice. And why is that they don't teach it in medical school? Well, yeah, I think that's certainly one one problem. Um, if we ask Canadian doctors what the problem is, they themselves identify that they don't have the skill set or the comfort um, making a clear diagnosis, and um, they don't have the time or resources, even if they have the knowledge to do it. So it's hard to fit this kind of medical problem into a 10 or 15-minute um, visit time with a family doctor. This is something that takes experts like myself an hour and a half of sitting down and discussing and figuring out what's going on and then discussing what we found. And that that's not a time frame that fits well into family practice. Okay, so we know that family doctors don't have the tools to diagnose, but then on the other hand, why is it happening that those people who are diagnosed are not always being given treatment? Yep, 
Good question. Um, you know, I ask myself that every day. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about the current medicines that we have. People don't temper the expectations well. You've got a progressive disease where people are gradually getting worse. And if you can slow down symptoms or stabilize symptoms for a while in a disease where people would otherwise relentlessly get worse, that is important and worthwhile. But if you don't understand how that works and you just see somebody getting worse, you may think, well, the drug's not doing anything, let's stop it. And so it takes a little bit of understanding about uh, what to expect with these medicines and when you are actually getting a treatment benefit. And you have to convey that to patients and their families as well. You know, it, we don't have um, drugs yet that completely stabilize the disease. So the underlying disease continues, but helping symptoms is still very important. And that's the piece that I think has been trivialized. You know, people are looking for a bigger, more dramatic treatment, and that will come. It's not here yet, but it will come. But in the meantime, you've got to use the tools you have uh, just the way if you had some other serious disease, you wouldn't not treat pain or psychological distress, or I mean, you would still give analgesics, you would still do things to help people. So it shouldn't be an all or nothing kind of phenomenon. Okay, so there are going to be many, many, many more people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or who have it. What do we do to fix this situation? Well, some of it's medical education and some of it's education directly to your audience and, and uh, you know, to the consumer that if you're worried about your memory, you need to insist that somebody takes it seriously. You don't want to be told, oh, this is just normal aging or what do you expect for being 60, 70, or 80. You want, you want to insist that you either get, you know, proper attention by your family doctor or you get referred to a memory specialist. And, and if a diagnosis is made, then you want to ask what the treatment options are and ask as, ask as an informed uh, consumer, you know, isn't there something I can try? Uh, and sometimes that will trigger physicians to prescribe just because patients ask. It sounds like it shouldn't work that way, but on the other hand, uh, we, need, we need to turn the tables here a little bit. Okay. Dr. Sharon Cohn, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sharon Cohn from the Toronto Memory Program. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we'll talk about the province delisting high doses of opioid medications and why that could be terrible for people suffering at the end of life. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. High doses of opioid drugs like fentanyl are proving to be a powerful killer of those addicted to drugs. That's why the Ontario government is delisting some of those powerful medications. But what about patients in palliative care? Palliative care doctors are speaking out, saying it will make it harder to keep pain at bay for those at the end of life. Dr. Darren Cargill, the section chair of palliative medicine at the Ontario Medical Association, joins me. So what is your reaction to this new policy from the Ontario government? Well, uh, the first thing I can tell you is uh, surprised. When this was announced on, uh, on July the 20th, 
myself and other physicians in Ontario, uh, we weren't aware uh, that this announcement was coming. And uh, for most of us, it, it sort of caught us a little bit off guard. Yes. Uh, I mean, they just decided this without consulting the doctors who need this medication? The ministry did undertake some consultation. What they did is they struck a subcommittee that they're referring to as the pain committee, and they also um, followed on some recommendations from another committee known as the Committee to Evaluate Drugs. Now, certainly what it means is that they did do some consultation, but from what it appears, it wasn't a very broad, very inclusive consultation. And I think that's where a lot of physicians are uh, very concerned and worried. Myself, I'm a palliative care physician. I'm a doctor that takes care of patients with a serious and life-threatening illness like cancer. And one of the things I can tell you is that cancer can sometimes be very difficult to treat from a pain perspective. And one of the things that myself and my colleagues are really worried about is that the delisting of these medications is going to make our job uh, much more difficult to do when we don't have all the necessary tools available to take care of our patients. It seems that they've looked at this problem from a, an addiction point of view without uh, thinking about end-of-life care, which is where patients need increasing amounts of these drugs. And all of this happening in a situation where we all know that people do not have enough access to palliative care. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Libby. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And the first thing I do want to stress is that everyone, including the doctors in Ontario, we understand that there is an opioid crisis. We do understand that there is a drug crisis in, in Ontario. But, you know, when you're looking at the situation through, you know, an addiction or chronic pain lens, perhaps what they've done does make some sense. But you need to take a step back and you need to take a look at the bigger picture. Palliative care is a huge problem in our province as well. And my worry is that what the, what the government has done is they've tried a very simple or perhaps, you know, even a, a complicated attempt to solve this problem when, in fact, it's a very complex problem that's going to require more than just simply delisting medications. So how do these high doses of opioids help you in treating patients in palliative care? So certainly one of the things that we know for patients in palliative care, you're absolutely right, sometimes they do need escalating doses of these pain medications. And one of the difficulties that palliative patients often run into is some physicians who don't have the necessary training or the fundamentals in palliative care, once patients start to get on the higher and higher doses of opioids, the physician may not necessarily be comfortable prescribing them. So sometimes what happens is patients won't um, get the dose escalations that they need. Now, the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that in order to achieve these higher doses, we could just simply be giving patients multiple amounts of smaller medication. So, for example, they did remove the Hydromorph Content 24-milligram capsule, but what I can do is I can give a patient two 12-milligram capsules. The problem is, why are we going to be asking palliative care patients who may already have difficulty swallowing medications to take more? When is this supposed to take effect, and what would you like to see happen? 
Well, according to the announcement, uh, it says that this is going to take place in January 2017, uh, so roughly about six months from now. And I I guess if I was going to ask the government to do something, I would ask them to do three things. The first thing I'd like them to do is instead of having a ticking clock or a timeline or a deadline, what I would like them to do is put this move on hold so that we're not under unnecessary time pressure. The second thing I'd like them to do is to sit down, not only with doctors, although doctors are a very important part of this equation, but what they need to do is sit down and strike the proper group to address this issue, to look at it not only from a palliative care standpoint, but from an addiction, from a pain, from a pharmacy standpoint, and to bring in the necessary groups to discuss this issue and bring it to the table. And then third, one of the things that I would like to see this government commit to is involving Ontario's doctors in these kind of decisions. Okay. Dr. Darren Cargill, thanks so much. Great. Thank you very much, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. That's Dr. Darren Cargill from the Ontario Medical Association on palliative care patients and the Ontario government delisting high doses of opioid drugs. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. In a moment, we'll celebrate the life and career of Mick Jagger, who turned 73 this week. The lead singer of the Rolling Stones, when we come back. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In Los Angeles, Tennessee Williams' play Baby Doll is enjoying its West Coast premiere. The play is about a Mississippi cotton gin owner's teenage bride who becomes a pawn in a conflict with a business rival. It's at the Fountain Theatre. In France, 31 of the 500 works by Van Gogh during his Provence years are on display in Arles. 29 of the paintings have never been shown before. In London, the son of legendary British actor Edward Fox has joined the cast of Romeo and Juliet after injuries to the principal lead and his understudy. Freddie Fox joined the cast at the Garrick Theatre earlier this week. And dissident artist Ai Weiwei has reproduced scenes of his incarceration in China for a new art installation at a 12th century cathedral in the medieval Spanish city of Cuenca. Sacred involves a series of almost life-size dioramas encased in steel boxes showing Ai Weiwei's life in prison. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. This week, the one and only Mick Jagger celebrated his 73rd birthday. The frontman of the iconic Rolling Stones has spent over five decades as a rock star, fashion icon, and sex symbol. Along the way, Mick has had a number of relationships with various women and fathered seven children. He's now a grandfather to five children and a great-grandfather to one. And now... He's once again expecting a child of his own. Just a few weeks ago, news broke that Mick Jagger and his 29-year-old girlfriend, American ballerina Melanie Hamrick, are expecting their first child together. It will be her first baby and Mick's eighth, born 46 years after his first back in 1970. Sources close to the couple say they are delighted and surprised. Right now, we'll hear Mick Jagger singing an early Rolling Stones hit, Here is Mother's Little Helper. 
That was the Rolling Stones with Mother's Little Helper, played in honor of Mick Jagger, who turned 73 this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Dave Woodard and Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.